AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked to Daniel Pink about the science of perfect timing? (laughs) <laughs> what if I said no? Like, would you be concerned about that? <laughs> and maybe a little bit concerned because this was just a few weeks ago, but especially because it was a super interesting episode yeah. and conversation and just all of that talk about how timing matters in so many ways that we don't stop and think about. You know, one of the things we talked about was how much timing matters when it comes to medical treatments, mm-hmm. like when not to have a surgery or when to go to the doctor. But, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about were the strange findings around the time of day and getting vaccinations and other specific medical treatments. Wait, so the time of day matters for vaccinations? Yeah. So there was this really interesting story about this in Scientific American and everything from cancer treatments to flu shots can trigger slightly different responses in our bodies depending on the time of day that we get them. So with flu shots, a few studies have actually found that those who got flu shots before 11 a.m produced more antibodies than those who got them later in the afternoon. Which is so strange. It really is. And it's yet another reminder of just how much we have to learn about our body clocks and the way they work. But back to the flu. I mean, we wanted to focus today's episode on answering some of the many questions people have. Like, why are some flu seasons worse than others? How do scientists know when some seasons will be particularly bad? And what goes into deciding what this year's vaccine is going to look like? Those are just a few of the questions we're answering today. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, offering complimentary flu shots, I think, yeah, that's what the (laughs) sign says, 
anybody brave enough to take him on it, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I mean, it, it is a nice gesture, don't you think, Mango? Yeah, although probably an illegal one, too, I'm guessing. Well, either way, he's getting a lot of side-eye glances from people around the office today. But I, I can't say I blame the guy for wanting to take some precautions. I mean, you know, personally vaccinating all your coworkers might be an extreme reaction. But, you know, there's no denying that this year's flu season is a pretty rough one. For example, I was looking at some of the stats and the latest flu update from January 19th. The CDC reports that 32 states plus New York City and Puerto Rico are currently experiencing what's considered high flu activity. And things are much better in other states. In fact, Hawaii is actually the only U.S. state that's not experiencing widespread flu activity. Yeah, but I mean, it's also had to deal with false alarms around missile strikes. So it's a, it's a bit of a trade off, I guess. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. But you know, as you might have guessed, today's show is all about influenza, or as it's better known, just the flu. And we're going to talk a little bit about what the illness is and how it spreads, as well as some of the clever ways analysts have found to track flu activity. But we also want to debunk some of the popular misconceptions around the flu. And, you know, since I just brought up the severity of this year's flu season, I do want to make sure we put some of that hype in perspective. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to give the flu a bad name or anything. Right. I mean, you know, people talk. <laughs> But seriously, you know, while there have been close to 9,000 influenza-related hospitalizations since October of last year, the overall hospitalization rate is actually down from the 2014-2015 season, which was considered a very high severity season. So while this year's flu season is a bad one, it isn't unprecedented, and we've actually dealt with worse in recent years. Yeah, and it's also worth keeping in mind that the CDC announced on January 12th that flu activity has likely peaked for the season, which is a good thing. Although, even if the worst is over, officials say there's still about three months to go until the illness is gone for the season. Oh, wow. So it is still a good idea to get that flu shot. Just, I don't know, maybe not from Tristan. <laughs> right. Well, while we're setting the record straight about the flu, we should probably address one of the biggest myths about it, which is that you can use antibiotics to treat it. And this is something a lot of people swear by, but the truth is that antibiotics only respond to illnesses caused by bacteria. And since the flu is born from virus, not bacteria, antibiotics actually don't have any effect on it. Yeah, you know, and this is something I think many of our listeners probably already know, but it is surprising when you read survey after survey of people misunderstanding this. So, so why do you think it trips up so many people? Well, part of it is that a viral infection of the nose, throat, and lungs can sometimes lead to bacterial illnesses like bronchitis. Like, antibiotics do have an effect on this kind of a secondary bacterial infection, so sometimes people credit them for helping with both kinds of illness. And that kind of confusion was especially common a few decades ago when it was really popular with doctors to preemptively prescribe antibiotics to flu patients. This was kind of a way to ward off the bacterial complications. And, you know, once the patients began to feel better, they'd mistakenly attribute the recovery to these trusty antibiotics. Yeah, and I think the other confusion is around the stomach flu, though, too. I mean, I think antibiotics typically do help with that, right? Yeah, they do. I mean, that's only because the stomach flu isn't a real thing, or at least it's not actually influenza. So remember, the flu is a respiratory illness caused by viruses. It has nothing to do with the gastrointestinal system. But people associate the general feeling of awfulness they get from stomach sickness with that of having, you know, a nasty case of the flu. So... Any kind of stomach bug or foodborne illness just gets labeled the flu. Well, and you know, since antibiotics would actually help with the kind of bacteria you deal with in food poisoning, that's, I don't know, maybe another reason for this whole myth about that helping them with the flu. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, people just hone in on the time antibiotics help them kick the stomach flu. Yeah, well, you know, another misconception about the flu is how it's spread. Now, you know, most people know the illness can be spread by others through these droplets of fluid that we expel when we cough or sneeze or even just talk. And these droplets can be launched as far as six feet, which makes it easy for them to land in people's <laughs> mouths or noses. It's just nasty to think about it. But, you know, they're inhaling them into their lungs as well. So it, it's pretty easy to spread in that way. Oh, it's so gross to think about. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the other way to spread the flu is through contact with contaminated objects. And, and this is where some folks get mixed up. Again, many of our listeners probably already know this, but it is something that comes up time and again. People not understanding it is... And that's that the flu is not transferred through the skin. So you're not going to get sick by just touching a contaminated doorknob or shaking hands with somebody who has the flu. So, I mean, we should talk about why it's important to keep washing your hands during the flu season, though. Well, because with the flu, it goes back to the nose and the mouth. So if you touch something coated with the virus and then you touch your nose or mouth, that's when the infection occurs. And, of course, this is why you definitely don't want to share dishes or utensils with somebody who has the flu either. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to share those things with anyone, period, but that's definitely good <laughs> advice. So one crazy statistic I found while researching is that approximately one third of families with school aged children are actually infected with the flu each year. A third. I mean, that's wow. insane. And I, I think one reason that's the case is that spreading the flu might be even easier than we think. And how's that? Well, uh, according to a new study from the University of Maryland, breathing alone is enough to spread the flu virus, never mind sneezing or coughing. So what happened was researchers gathered breath samples from 142 people who were confirmed to have the flu. And after testing those samples, it was found that nearly half of the fine aerosol droplets collected during normal breathing contained viral RNA. All right. So so just exhaling can cause the virus to spread. You know, it's still something like sneezing it seems like that has to be way worse, right? Like, I think a lot more of the, what did you call them, the aerosol droplets, mm -hmm. it, it seems like more of those would be pushed out with a sneeze than just your normal breathing, right? Yeah, I mean, you think so, but sneezing happens a lot less often than breathing, so it isn't as big a contributor as you'd guess. In fact, when participants in UMD's study provided sneeze samples, there wasn't much viral RNA in those aerosol droplets. So really, sneezing isn't the big factor or as big a factor in spreading the flu virus as coughing or even just breathing normally. All right. So I think we need to pause just to figure out whether there's an upside to this research or is this really only good for making me even more paranoid <laughs> about being around people with the flu? Well, I mean, it suggests some new ways to help fight the spread of the flu, such as improving ventilation in schools or offices or even subway cars. But probably the biggest upside is that the findings might actually make public health initiatives more accurate at tracking the risk of flu epidemics and also controlling the outbreaks. So having a better sense of how the virus spreads through the air will go a long way towards improving the computer models we use for that kind of work. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned the effort to track these and, and predict the flu outbreaks because there, there's a new model for this that I do want to talk about. So back in 2013, the CDC kicked off this official, it was called the Predict the Influenza Season Challenge. Doesn't that sound uh, <laughs> exciting? But, you know, it was this way of encouraging researchers to find ways of using social media to predict and track the flu. And so you had researchers from all over the country competing in this kind of thing and even companies like Google getting involved. But you know, one of the most interesting results of the challenge came from Northeastern University in Boston. 
So last year, a team there collected location data from over 50 million tweets. And we've talked a little bit before about the use of like mass data in order to try to predict certain things. But they they weren't just grabbing content willy nilly. Instead, they restricted their research to messages that contained flu related words like coughing and vomiting. And then all this data helped them form this picture of early flu activity all over the country. And they did this like a full six weeks before the flu season officially began. Which is kind of amazing, right? Six weeks before the season. But what's the practical application for like that kind of mapping? Well, it helps these health organizations predict the amount of flu cases to expect that season, you know, as well as how the virus might peak and when it might peak and whether it may be more or less contagious than previous years. And a heads up of this kind of stuff can help when the illness hits in full force. In any given year, somewhere between 5 and 20% of the U.S. population comes down with the flu. So knowing where we might fall on that scale definitely helps with preparations and helps to make sure there are enough flu vaccines available to meet the demand for the year. Which makes sense, right? Like a little forewarning counts for a lot when you're dealing with a matter of life and death. And the flu is most certainly that. In fact, according to the World Health Organization and the CDC, the flu is responsible for somewhere between 300,000 and 700,000 deaths worldwide each year. And between 2010 and 2016, flu-related deaths in the U.S. ranged from about 10,000 to 60,000 annually. Wow. I mean, that's that's a lot of people, and it's pretty frightening to think about that. But, you know, I've I've always wondered, like, what is a flu-related death? I mean, I obviously understand the basic concept, but, but how exactly does the flu kill somebody? Yeah, I was curious about that, too. So I looked into it, and... There are actually a few ways the flu can take us out. So first, it helps to know that once the flu virus enters your body, it immediately sets to work. It hijacks human cells in the nose and throat and converts them into copies of itself. And this sudden influx of viral cells, it triggers the immune system, which immediately responds by sending an army of white blood cells and antibodies to fight back the horde. Now, the good guy cells are victorious in most cases. They destroy the virus-laden tissue, and you start to feel better as a result within a few days or weeks. But every now and then, the immune system gets a little overeager with its defense efforts, and in these cases, so much tissue is destroyed that the lungs can no longer provide the blood with the amount of oxygen it needs. And this results in this deficiency of oxygen called hypoxia, which can be terminal. Another way the flu can be deadly is through those secondary bacterial infections that I mentioned earlier. The immune system can exhaust itself fighting the flu, which leaves it open to attack by bacterial infections, which can then cause organ damage or even death. Wow. And and so which of these is actually more of a problem? Are there more flu-related deaths due to the virus itself and what it does to the immune system or, you know, maybe to the bacterial infections that overwhelm the system? Yeah, it it really varies. So the viral strains that cause the flu are always changing from season to season. And it's typically the most virulent ones that collapse the immune system on their own. The bacterial-related flu deaths are more the result of a lack of cleanliness in the facilities where flu patients are housed. For example, some researchers think that during the infamous global flu pandemic of 1918, when cities were at their least hygienic, the majority of deaths were due to bacterial infections. Well, I know there definitely is a lot more to say about the 1918 pandemic, and, and not all of that is going to be pretty. So before we get into that, let's take a quick break. L-A-S-I-K. 
LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the ins and outs of influenza. All right, so we definitely should talk a little bit about pandemics, but before we do that, just a quick note on the terms there. So two words that crop up a lot when we discuss contagious diseases and illnesses, these words epidemic and pandemic. So just to set the record straight, a flu epidemic is a sudden outbreak of the virus that spreads rapidly and, of course, affects a lot of people at once. In other words, flu epidemics happen every year and aren't much of a cause for alarm on their own. Many of the cases that make up an epidemic are pretty mild, though, of course, there are always some that prove to be lethal. Something that's unfortunately especially true for both very young and the elderly, who sadly account for the highest hospitalization rates during most flu seasons. On the other hand, a pandemic is cause for very much alarm. And there are two characteristics of pandemics that kind of explain why this is. And the first is that the virus involved in a pandemic is always a new strain. It's one that few people or, or maybe even none at all have any kind of resistance to. 
And then the second is that a pandemic involves a virus that spread to more than one continent. And that basically means that this strain is gaining strength and claiming victims with no clear sign of slowing down. Yeah, and flu pandemics have been wreaking havoc pretty much since the illness came on the scene in the late 1500s. That's when the first major flu pandemic on record swept through Asia and Europe and wiped out roughly 10% of Rome's population in just one week's time. It's crazy, right? And since then, there have been more than a dozen confirmed flu pandemics, but the worst in modern history is undoubtedly the one from 1918. Well, and this is the one that most people refer to as the Spanish flu, right? Yeah, which really has been one of the most unfair misnomers in history because the Spanish flu definitely didn't come from Spain or the Spaniards. You know, I remember hearing that that was the case, but I can't remember why this nickname came about in the first place. Do you know why this is? Mm-hmm. Well, World War I was nearing its end by the time the pandemic rolled around, and most countries involved were wary of letting their enemies know how badly they'd been hit by the flu. So in places like Germany, France, Austria, UK, US even, like all the major players, news outlets weren't allowed to report on the true extent of the crisis. But Spain, if you'll remember, was neutral. Like, they had no reason to hide the flu's impact. So when Spanish papers became the first to report on the millions of flu-related deaths in the country, many people got the false impression that the country was disproportionately affected by the illness and that it must have also originated there. I would say that's pretty much the definition of a bum rap. Mm -hmm. But all right, so if, if Spain definitely wasn't the originator, who was? I mean, it's still a matter of debate, actually. Some researchers think it originated in uh, East Asia. Some think it's in Europe. But others claim it started in Kansas, where U.S. soldiers occupied this unsanitary military base before shipping off for the fight in Europe. But no matter where the pandemic virus began geographically, we now know that it adapted from an avian virus strain. So the bird flu. Mm -hmm, Exactly. We should be pointing our fingers at birds. Right. But you mentioned earlier that pandemics are a result of new unknown flu strains. Well, in the case of the 1918 pandemic, the new strain came from a bird-based illness that mutated until it had the necessary features to be transmitted to humans. And this was something that wasn't confirmed until many years later. But even at the time, there was talk that birds might be to blame for the outbreak. In fact, these suspicions even inspired a creepy schoolyard rhyme, kind of like the pocket full of posies one that's supposedly based on the plague. All right, and I'm assuming you know how it went. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm not going to sing it because I have a terrible singing voice, but uh, supposedly it has the same tune as Ring Around the Rosie. But the lyrics go, I had a little bird and its name was Enza. I opened the window and influenza. You just made that up. Is that real? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a little punnier than the plague rhyme, but I I guess I can imagine jumping rope to it. But, you know, kids (laughs) rhymes aside, it sounds like this was a super dangerous time to be alive. I mean, it's called the Great Pandemic for a reason. Absolutely. The virus flared up all around the world, and every time it did, more people died. In fact, it's estimated that as many as 50 million to 100 million people died worldwide during the event, which was roughly 5% of the world's population. It's just insane to think about. I, I mean, that's more than the number of people who died from actual combat during World War One. Wow. And, and I'm guessing that just about everybody who contracted the flu that year did, actually died from it. Or is, is this not right? That's what I thought, too. But, but that's not the case. So uh, according to research from the CDC, about half a billion people were infected with the flu in 1918. But an overwhelming majority of them managed to survive it. In fact, the national death rates for those infected rarely rose above 20 percent. But that said, the typical flu outbreak kills less than 1% of those affected. So a 20% rate is off the charts. 
Yeah, no kidding. And, you know, one thing I don't understand, though, is why the 1918 pandemic was so much more severe than the ones before it or since then. I mean, what made that one so destructive? Well, we already mentioned the emergence of a brand new avian virus that most of the world just wasn't equipped to fight off. But another key factor was the unhygienic conditions of the time, especially among urban residents and the millions of troops engaged in trench warfare around the globe. And as writers Catherine Pauls and Anthony Fauci put it in their recent article for uh, Scientific American, quote, crowding and poor sanitation allowed for rampant disease transmission, especially in areas where access to health care was limited. Antivirals to treat influenza were not available in 1918, and infections often were complicated by fatal bacterial pneumonias for which there were no effective antibodies. Further, protective vaccines, the cornerstone of modern influenza prevention, we're still decades in the future. Yeah, I read up on how the flu vaccine eventually came about, and it really wasn't rolled out to the public until the mid-1940s. And that may seem like a late addition, but you do have to consider that it wasn't until the 1930s that scientists even figured this out, you know, that this was a virus causing this widespread illness. And that breakthrough came compliments of an American researcher named Dr. Francis Jr., and you know what he used? He actually used ferrets to prove that the flu was purely a viral illness. <laughs> Wait, why ferrets? Well, strangely enough, ferrets are the model organism for influenza research. Apparently, most animals can produce two kinds of sialic acid, and, and that's the sugar that's crucial for certain metabolic processes. But ferrets, much like humans, they can actually only make one kind. So what exactly does that have to do with the flu? Well, flu strains bind to the sialic acid, and that causes the infection, but different strains have different preferences for which kind they actually adhere to. And since ferrets can only make the same type of sugar as humans, they're naturally susceptible to the humanized strains of influenza. Uh, I mean, that's a raw deal for ferrets. It might be, but it, it kind of gives the lab rats a break for a bit. But <laughs> seriously, I mean, this year marks the 100th anniversary of what's widely considered to be the most disastrous outbreak of an infectious illness in known history. And of course, the question that brings to mind for me is how much progress have we made since then? Or to put it another way, how likely is it that we'll have to deal with a nightmare like that sometime again? Well, I know the flu vaccine has lessened the sting of influenza and obviously saved countless lives in the process, but I also know that vaccines don't always work, particularly with new pandemic strains, and it's possible that we're still pretty vulnerable. Well, that's what I was afraid of. And we should talk a little bit more about how vaccines work and, and how the fight against the flu is going today. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay, well, so let's do our part to help avert another global health crisis. Tell me everything you know about the flu vaccine. <laughs> I'm flattered you think my take might help prevent a health crisis, but you might be overstating how much I know by just a bit. But I did do some research, and, and one of the things that struck me was just how much work goes into developing these flu vaccines. And it is vaccines, plural, because every year we have to develop a new one. So why is that? Well, because flu viruses are constantly changing in these subtle ways. So they evolve through continuous genetic mutations or sometimes by swapping genes with other flu strains. So by the time the next flu season rolls around, you're actually dealing with a slightly different kind of threat than the one you faced in the year prior. Now, our current solution to this problem is to develop new vaccines each year. And this allows us to better target the specific viruses that are predicted to be active in the upcoming season. But unfortunately, even with these annual updates to flu vaccines, they're usually only about 40 to 60 percent effective at best. And in some years, vaccine effectiveness is even lower than that. And I think that's what I've been reading about is the case this year. But why is it lower than 40 percent? I, I thought vaccination was our best chance for ducking the flu. Well, it definitely is. But, you know, sometimes new viral variants emerge in between the development and the deployment of a new vaccine. You know, so scientists could be prepping this year's new vaccine based on all the data they have from the current crop of viruses. And then, you know, bam, suddenly a new strain comes out of nowhere and kind of blindsides them. I know this idea that your vaccine can't protect against this new virus that comes out is kind of tricky. Yeah, it is. And, and in a case like that, it's still better to roll out the new vaccine than none at all. But, you know, the vaccine's effectiveness will be much lower because it won't fully match the viruses it's up against. Which almost sounds like we need a new system. Yeah, and there are a lot of these national health organizations that would agree with you on this, and, and there are a lot of conversations going on around this. So just last year, a few of them met with leading flu experts to discuss better ideas for, you know, improved flu vaccines. Of course, the dream is to do away with all the guesswork that makes us need new vaccines and just have this one universal flu shot instead. So, for example, one idea is to design a vaccine that targets the parts of the virus that are common among all flu strains. The other parts that don't easily change through mutation. Which sounds promising, and this kind of just popped into my head, but it might sound a little random. What exactly is in a flu vaccine? Like, is it like with uh, allergy shots where they inject you with whatever you're allergic to? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, flu vaccines are made of dead viruses, and when they're injected in the body, they trigger this defensive response from your immune system. And that kind of serves as a training for when the body is faced with the live viruses. 
So then wait, can't we make a universal vaccine by just sticking corpses of all the known viral strains into one injection? And that way the body would be primed to take on all the new viruses? Well, it's a nice theory. And I appreciate you're trying to solve <laughs> all of this issue with just one big vaccine. But you know, the reality is that the human immune system doesn't really have the capacity to effectively fight that many viruses at one time. And so the vaccine would just wind up making you sick. But, you know, I, I was reading about some new research from a joint team of U.S. and Chinese scientists who think they may have found a workaround. And their solution is to boost the immune system's ability to deal with a variety of viruses by making a vaccine that elicits a strong response from the body's T cells. And those are the white blood cells that fight diseases. But don't current vaccines stimulate those already? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the current vaccines don't elicit a strong T cell response because they're made from dead viruses. Instead, they only trigger the development of antibodies, which are helpful in their own right. I mean, they bind to intruding flu cells and help prevent infection, but not as much as when they're working with T cells. All right. So, Will, I think your bias is showing what's so great about T cells. Well, in this case, the advantage of T cells is that they would be on alert for different features of the flu virus. You know, while antibodies would be mostly keeping watch for the shape of the specific strain. So by using a live virus in the vaccine, you've got patients that would have both antibodies and T cells working on their side from the start. You know, rather than waiting for T cells to show up only after you already have the flu. So Kathleen Sullivan, a director at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, she describes the benefit this way. She says, it has the magic of both great antibody response and inducing a strong T-cell response that will be a safety net. So if a virus breaks through the first line of defense, you'll have T-cells to make sure you don't get very sick. Which is pretty cool, but still, injecting yourself with a live flu virus seems kind of dicey. I mean, does this work with just any viral strain that happens to be lying around? Well, not exactly. I mean, see, the scientists basically took apart a flu virus in their lab, figured out what made it tick. And they kind of Frankenstein a mutant flu strain that was perfectly suited for this new kind of vaccination. And what exactly makes it so suitable to be injected live into my body? Because I have to tell you, I've avoided Tristan's uh, injections here, and I'm pretty picky about this kind of thing. <laughs> well, th what they did was they created a strain that was strong enough to replicate efficiently, but actually weak enough so that our immune systems can easily control them. So once the mutant virus is injected into the vaccine, it triggers both an antibody response and a T cell response, you know, all while never posing that much of an actual threat to the body. And not only that, but because T cell responses tend to provide longer term immunity, a vaccine like this could actually do away with the need for annual flu vaccinations. Well, I, I'm sure there's still a ways to go before a universal vaccine like that can go public. But I'll admit the prospect of not having to get a flu shot anymore is pretty appealing. And in the meantime, though, annual vaccinations are still the best chance to stay healthy. And not just for ourselves, but for all of society. I was reading this article in Quanta magazine that uh, pointed out how people who talk themselves out of getting flu shots because, you know, they never get the flu are sort of missing the point. And how's that? Well, the idea is that vaccination campaigns, whether for the flu or anything else, aren't merely a way of keeping yourself from getting sick. They're also a way to boost our collective resistance. There's an idea that health experts throw around called herd immunity, which is basically the level of immunity that a population needs in order to prevent an outbreak of a disease. So when herd immunity dips below a certain level, which varies from disease to disease, that's when our epidemics occur. Yeah, that's definitely true. But I mean, it's kind of painting this vaccinations as the be all end all to the flu protection. So 
we definitely need to think about the other preventative measures out there, you know, like avoiding public spaces during flu season or washing our hands more often. And, you know, all the analysis and predictive tracking that goes into planning for a flu season. So, I mean, all of this has to count for something, right? Yeah, it does. And every little bit helps when you're up against like an ageless, invisible enemy who's constantly changing his tactics. But uh, no matter how much you hate getting shots or how much you love washing your hands, it doesn't change the fact that vaccinations are any society's best option for keeping epidemics at bay. So as Tara Smith put it in her article for Quanta, knowing the factors that contribute to these outbreaks can aid us in stopping epidemics in their early stages. But to prevent them from happening in the first place, a population with a high level of immunity is, mathematically, our best bet for keeping disease at bay. All right, Mango, I think you sold me. So, Tristan, get over here, buddy. I think I finally worked up the nerve for this shot. <laughs> okay, but before I have to take you to the ER, why don't we do our fact off? All right, that's probably a better idea anyway. So, we talked a little earlier about the terrible flu of 1918. Did you know that if Walt Disney himself hadn't gotten the flu during the pandemic, we might have missed out on the birth of Mickey Mouse entirely? So towards the end of World War I, Disney was signed up to work for the Red Cross Ambulance Corps. He was only 16 at the time, and that might seem a little young, but it's because Disney lied about his age. But before heading out, he actually got the flu, and by the time he was well and able to go, the war was over. All right, well, one day we may be getting our flu shots with a bit of frog slime in them. Or at least scientists are trying to figure out why it appears that the slime from an Indian fungoid frog appears to have multiple peptides that are capable of killing the H1 flu virus. Hmm. So they tested the most effective of these peptides in this concoction that they gave to mice. And sure enough, it actually kept them from getting the flu and it seemed to produce no side effects. So the next step, of course, is figuring out whether this can be tested in people. Another interesting possible treatment, estrogen. So we've actually known for some time that estrogen seems to have some antiviral effect on Ebola and hepatitis and HIV. So there have recently been more studies on its effects on the flu. And through a few studies, they found that estrogen did, in fact, significantly slow the replication of the flu virus. It'll be interesting to see where this goes in terms of developing treatment. But, uh, but I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. Well, in terms of ways to prevent the spread of the flu beyond vaccines, the Wall Street Journal reported on a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research, and it showed that paid sick days for employees would reduce the spread of the flu. And maybe that's not a huge surprise, but the numbers are pretty surprising. I mean, for those who do not get paid sick time, you know, they're, of course, more likely to go to work sick and are therefore more likely to spread their illness. And, of course, this is something that can be abused to some extent. But when you consider the estimate that paid leave would reduce flu cases by 6%, it might just be worth it. You know, Mango, I got to hand it to you. We've been talking about something which is not always the happiest topic. But you found something positive out of it. We have Mickey Mouse because <laughs> of the flu. So I'm going to have to give you this week's Fact Off Trophy. Congratulations. Thanks so much. All right, listeners, if we forgot any facts you feel like we should know about, we'd love to hear from you. It's part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also call our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. We love hearing from you. And thanks so much for listening.
Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.